Science is the great antidote to the poison of enthusiasm and superstition. Hi, I'm Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote, named for Adam Smith, brought to you by Liberty Fund. To learn more, visit www.adamsmithworks.org. Welcome back. Today, on September 16th, 2022, we're going to explore yet another aspect of our complex healthcare system in the United States, Medicare. I was almost tempted to uh, name this episode Medicare, who are we trying to care for and are we actually caring for them? But it's just going to be called Medicare. Um, I'm excited to welcome Michael Cannon back to the podcast to help us out with this. He is the Cato Institute's Director of Health Policy Studies. Welcome back. Great to be here. So I'm going to ask you again, but hopefully you have a different answer. What is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? I think the most important thing that everyone needs to know, young and old, is to have a sense of your own worth and uh, to insist that other people respect that. And that is something that... that uh, will serve you well, whether you're talking about uh, familial relationships, romantic relationships, or professional relationships. I think the last time I was on the podcast, I might have mentioned how someone asked the basketball player, Charles Barkley, how can you ask for so much in salary from uh, uh, from the basketball team that wants to sign you? And he said, if I don't ask for it, they're going to think, I don't think I'm worth that. It's a good response. Um, and I think that's, I mean, an, that's an attitude that would serve everybody well in uh, it, it, as they, whether, whether they're in salary negotiations or whether they are um, uh, choosing mates or any other relationship. Good to keep in mind. Thank you. So what is Medicare? How does it fit into our healthcare system? Okay, so the Medicare program is a program that the federal government runs all by itself exclusively. And it is a program that subsidizes healthcare for principally for senior citizens, people over age 65. There are a couple of other groups that are eligible for Medicare. We can talk about them. And the Medicare program Although some people call it a single-payer program, it isn't really. Single-payer means only one entity is buying all of the health care for the people it covers. With the Medicare program, that's not quite how it works. Uh, Medicare enrollees still have to pay for some of their medical care. So in addition to Medicare paying for it, there are additional payers, the enrollees themselves. Um, and those enrollees sometimes buy supplemental coverage uh, to cover the gaps in Medicare coverage. So there's another payer. And uh, and so it is, even though people refer to it as a single-payer program, it's not quite that. And uh, the Medicare program, hit, Congress created it in 1965 when they noticed, the Congress noticed there are a lot of senior citizens, about half of senior citizens, did not have health insurance. And it has changed a lot since 1965. Uh, and in the uh, 50 
almost uh, 55 or 56 years now that uh, Medicare has uh, been in operation. Uh, there's been a lot of evidence that has accumulated that it has actually had a negative impact on the quality of care that Medicare enrollees receive and everyone else receives, and that Medicare has increased the cost of medical care for uh, uh, the increase the price of providing medical care to seniors, but also to people under age 65. And we'll get into all of that. But first, is Medicare enrollment mandatory for people of age? Uh, No, it's not. Uh, The only mandatory part of Medicare is that you pay taxes into the program. If you don't want to sign up for Medicare, you don't have to. Now, the federal government does say that if you don't sign up for Medicare, you don't get a Social Security check. That's not mandatory, though. That's not coercive. It's not compulsory because all that the government is doing is withholding from you an additional subsidy. That uh, that doesn't uh, coerce you. It might leave you poorer. But that's not what we mean in a political context when we're talking about When we're talking about coercion, what we mean is the government using physical force against you. And so there's no threat of uh, physical force, no coercion the government uses to get people to enroll in the Medicare program. And yet 99% of eligible U.S. residents enroll in the Medicare program because, partly because they wouldn't want to lose the Social Security uh, benefits. But even probably even more than that, the subsidies that seniors receive through the Medicare program are so lavish. Uh, the Medicare program spends about twelve thousand dollars per enroll per enrollee per year, a little more than that actually. Oh well, that's how much the taxpayers contribute uh, to how much Medicare spends, and then enrollees also pay premiums, and that uh, raises the spending even more. And Medicare pays so much per enrollee, that even though it only enrolls about 60 million people in the program, in terms of dollars, Medicare is the largest purchaser of healthcare services in the world. The, wow. This is the largest single purchaser of healthcare services in the world. And it is larger than the entire health sector of every country in the world, except for about four, China, India, France, and Germany. Those are the only countries whose health sectors spend more money than the Medicare program does. And even within those health sectors, there are lots of different payers. So Medicare is still the single largest payer. Medicare is is an absolute beast of a program uh, that um, that in addition you know, to increasing the cost of care, reducing the quality of care, uh, does not appear to have improved outcomes, uh, is rife with fraud and abuse and improper payments, um, and is uh, and yet some people still point to Medicare as a model for performing the entire U.S. health sector. And they do that not because they understand the Medicare program. In fact, there is a former member of Congress and former U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Secretary under Bill Clinton. Her name is Donna Shalala. She says, I have never met anyone who supports Medicare for all who actually understands the Medicare program. But people do support Medicare for all uh, because they don't understand the Medicare program and because they know that 
it is popular, but it's not popular because it's a better alternative than the uh, other options uh, available to seniors. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's popular because it provides such lavish subsidies to senior citizens and to the, the healthcare industry, which makes tons and tons of money off the Medicare program. It spends about a trillion dollars a year. So that's about a quarter of U.S. health spending, a huge chunk of every hospital's revenues and the revenues that physicians and pharmaceutical companies get. They get lots and lots of money from the Medicare program. And that's another reason why why Medicare is popular. It's popular with the industry because the industry makes tons of money off of the taxpayers through the Medicare program. So one more question before we kind of get into all of that. What happens if you're old and poor? Do you get health care from Medicare, Medicaid, both? Well, here might be a good place to talk about wh- how the Medicare program came to be. Because what happens with your when you're old and poor? Well, what happens is the federal government makes, government makes it more likely that you're going to be poor when you get old. And Medicare was sort of a response to all the things that the government has done to leave a lot of elderly people uh, uh, poorer. So in our last conversation, we talked about this, this weird quirk of the tax code that ties health insurance to employment. Uh, we call it this, this, the technical term is the tax exclusion for employer-sponsored insurance, Uh what it means is that if your employer gives you a dollar of health benefits, of health insurance, it's not taxed. You get a dollar, your employer gives that to you, a dollar's worth of health benefits, you get a dollar's worth of health benefits. But if your employer took that same dollar and gave it to you as cash, which you would then control and you could use to buy health insurance that's not tied to your job, the government taxes that at an average marginal rate of 33%. So you lose 33 cents of that dollar. That's effectively a penalty on on people who want to control their own healthcare dollars and uh, choose their own health insurance and make their own health decisions, and it uh, it penalizes you unless you enroll in an employer sponsored health insurance plan. Let your employer control that dollar. Or actually, it's about sixteen thousand dollars for workers with family coverage on average. So it's a big chunk of change, and. The way that came about, that's been in place for uh, about 100 years. The way that implicit penalty in the tax code came about was in 1913, Congress created the income tax. They didn't even think about employee health benefits because they were so rare and modern health insurance didn't even exist. So the Treasury, but there were some kind of health benefits employers were offering. The Treasury Department said, well, we got to figure out, are we going to subject these this form of compensation to the new income tax or not? They decided it was too complicated and they didn't. And that is what created this exclusion for employee health benefits and created that implicit penalty that I mentioned on people who want to control their own health care. Now, what does this have to do with the Medicare program? Well, all that happened around 19 in the 1920s. Okay. In the 1920s, Congress started penalizing people who wanted to control their own health care dollars, make their own health care decisions, and purchase their own health insurance. That was in the 1920s. 40 years later, uh, and so remember, they're penalizing you unless you enroll in an employer-sponsored plan that disappears when you leave that job, such as when you retire. So for 40 years, 
uh, before 1965, Congress had been penalizing workers if they enrolled in coverage that covered them after they turn age 65 and would cover them until death. Uh, and the only way to avoid that penalty is if you enrolled in an employer-sponsored plan that disappeared when you turn age 65. So when Congress looked around in 1965 and noticed, hey, half of senior citizens don't have health insurance, a lot of them said, well, this is a market failure. It wasn't a market failure at all. Government created this problem or made it far, far worse, left a lot of seniors poorer because even though there were health insurance plans available that would, could have covered them through retirement and all the way until death, Congress penalized those plans, effectively rewarded uh, a kind of health insurance that disappears when you retire. And they left that policy in place for 40 years. And so that's why so many seniors uh, lacked health insurance. And rather than, and this is significant because this happens all the time when we look at government, and government trying to solve problems. Uh, this is a problem that government itself created by accident, but government created this problem when it created that penalty on, on lifetime health insurance. And uh, rather than go back and fix the thing that Congress did to create this problem, did they do that? No, 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 no. That's not what we do. We don't admit and 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 fix our mistakes. We create new government programs to try to solve the problems we created with the old government intervention in the economy. And that new government program was Medicare. And like I said, Medicare has not uh, reduced healthcare prices. It has not uh, improved the health, the quality of healthcare. Uh, and it did the opposite of these things. And, and the best evidence we have suggests that Medicare didn't even save a single life in its first 10 years, for all the billions of dollars it was throwing at healthcare for seniors, it didn't save a single life, a single senior citizen's life, in its, in at least its first 10 years. Um, and and as I say, this is this is the the pattern we see whenever government intervenes in the economy and creates problems. It never undoes the intervention that creates those problems. It, it just intervenes more and creates more problems. You remember the old uh, nursery rhyme about the the old woman who swallowed a fly? No. She was so distressed about swallowing this fly, she thought, what am I going to do? I know, I'll swallow a, a spider to catch the fly. Oof. And the spider wiggled and jiggled and tickled inside her. And so she thought, oh, well, now I have a spider inside of me. I got to do something to get the spider. She swallowed a bird to catch the spider. And then eventually she swallows a cat to catch the bird. She swallows a dog to catch the cat. She swallows a goat to catch the dog. We are, and that's been happening in healthcare at the federal level ever for a hundred years, ever since the government penalized lifetime health insurance. And right now we're probably, you know, in goat territory where we swallowed the goat. And a lot of people now want to swallow the horse to catch the goat. Um, and, uh, uh, that's, that's the Medicare for all crowd for you. And we'll get into that, but it just, I mean, if we take it as the government is this old woman who is doing all these crazy things, uh, it's not sustainable. It's just not sustainable. Um, but that's funny. I'd never heard that before. Let's talk about these lavish subsidies. So they're lavish. Doesn't that mean that it's working? high quality? Don't we like that? 
Well, you know, if um, if the government uh, required you to spend twice as much for uh, pizza and beer on Friday nights than you're currently spending, uh, would 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 that be a success? Uh, no, because you'd have less money to spend on other things. If the government uh, started providing you beer and pizza on Friday nights and uh, was paying twice as much as you're paying for those items right now, same story. It would not be a success because the government would be taxing you double what it actually, what it should cost for you to get those items. And that's kind of what's happening right now with um, with uh, the I mean, that's kind of that's exactly what's happening right now with the Medicare program. Uh, when Congress created Medicare, uh, health care prices shot up. Doctors began charging more. Hospitals began charging more. Because uh, because of the way Congress created the Medicare program, and those prices are still too high right now, uh, and Medicare often pays. Uh, I mean, doctors never complain when Medicare pays too much. They only complain when Medicare uh, when they think Medicare is paying them too little. And so there's this impression out there that Medicare uh, shortchanges doctors, doesn't pay them enough, doesn't pay hospitals enough, doesn't pay drug companies enough. But when you look at uh, price comparisons, uh, the prices Medicare pays for drugs ex- exceeds the prices that other countries pay uh, by substantial amounts. And even when you look in the Medicare program, you find lots of areas, I mean, w- just comparisons within the United States, you find lots of areas where Medicare is paying too much, where they are paying hospitals twice as much to provide the same service that uh, that um, standalone um uh, the physician's offices are paying, uh, the Medicare is paying physician's offices uh, because Medicare is not a good price negotiator, uh, despite uh, its all its purchasing power and its vaunted negotiating prowess. Uh, and every time you hear someone saying that Medicare should be able to negotiate uh, the prices of prescription drugs with pharmaceutical companies, that's because it's not because Medicare isn't negotiating those prices. It's because Congress uh, was negotiating with the pharmaceutical companies and lost uh, because Congress is no good at it. So they're paying inflated prices for drugs. And uh, and yes, you know, Congress just passed a law, the Inflation Reduction Act, that included some Medicare provisions that would allow the Medicare bureaucracy to say no to certain drugs unless the uh, drug manufacturers bring the prices down. Uh, it took 20 years for Congress to create that authority. And I favor that authority uh, because that should reduce government spending on these items. But uh, this isn't a victory yet because we haven't even seen whether Medicare is actually able to negotiate lower prices. So, no, this is not a success that Medicare is throwing tons of money at the health sector. It means we're overpaying for what we're getting, and we're not able to spend uh, uh, resources on other things that would provide value. We're just throwing a lot of money down a hole. And one more data point. That's prices. We were just talking about prices. Medicare also pays for a lot of services that don't do anything to benefit the patient. The best available evidence, and I could talk about where this evidence comes from. It's really fascinating research design. But the best available evidence, and a couple different research designs come to the same conclusion. They suggest that one out of every $3 that Medicare spends 
buys nothing, absolutely nothing in terms of better health or greater patient satisfaction. It provides zero benefit to patients. One out of every $3 Medicare spends. That's that's about $333 billion per year, larger than the GDP of some states or the gross state product of, of some states. And uh, that's money that we can't be spending on other things that would provide value because Medicare throws that uh, money at, at services that provide zero value. So this is not a success at all. And we haven't even gotten into the impact on 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 healthcare quality or um, uh, the research on whether Medicare has saved lives. I mean, so let's go there. What is the quality of Medicare? If I'm or maybe let's take two people, like one person who's using Medicare and one person who isn't. What are the differences in quality, even if they're receiving the same services? So it's a tough question to answer because uh, they these two people are really receiving medical care from the same uh, providers. Uh, and those the way those providers practice medicine, well, Medicare influences the way they practice medicine, even for their non-Medicare patients. So it's hard to do a clean experiment where you separate, you know, Medicare versus non-Medicare patients and 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 see who gets higher quality care. But there, there are two things that Medicare did that most scholars recognized had a negative impact on quality of care. One of them is that uh, the Congress prohibited Medicare from trying to improve quality. In 1965, they said um, uh, they said we're creating all these subsidies, but the federal government can't do anything to try to make sure that the quality of care is better. I mean, there, there's some limited programs, but there's also there's also a general proscription on the Medicare bureaucracy trying to change the way doctors practice medicine. That's one of the things the doctors wanted in there, if as the price of their of them dropping their opposition to the Medicare program. You got to give us all these subsidies with no strings attached, including no strings that might try to get us to be better doctors. If I went to buy pizza and you was like, oh, well, you can buy pizza, but you can't choose what you what I put on your pizza. What? Right. What? Right. And 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 healthcare is 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 sort of healthcare is tougher than pizza. You can generally uh, judge whether the pizza you're eating is good or not. People, consumers are pretty good at that. We're less good at it when it comes to healthcare because it's there's the human body is so complex and the the uh, practice of medicine is so complex and there's so much uncertainty involved that, that it's really hard to know whether a patient who suffered wh- whether the doctor what the doctor did is responsible for the good outcome that the patient experienced or not responsible for the bad outcome that the patient experienced because maybe uh, you you're your body healed itself on its own, or maybe uh, you died for something that was beyond the doctor's control that the doctor shouldn't be blamed for. And sometimes it's hard to know. So, uh, so it's much harder to judge quality. You need, you need to look at large populations uh, and, uh, and, and randomize people into, into different um, intervention and control arms. Uh, And where, uh, and those sort of data are hard to come by, but there's a lot of data that show that um, 
that there is a that there's low quality care in Medicare under use of highly effective low cost preventive services, um, and uh, and, and other quality problems like medic medication errors and other medical errors, and and here's the really uh, I, I mentioned there are two big factors that were contributing to ne Medicare's negative impact on quality. One was uh, they said uh, the Congress said Medicare can't try to improve quality. Congress actually changed that years down the road and created some quality improvement programs, and they basically had no effect. So that one might not have had much of an impact because even when Medicare tries to improve quality, it it fails. And we can talk about why that is. But there's this other factor that I don't think uh, even health policy scholars understand very well, and that is that uh, healthcare is so complex that uh, any single way of paying doctors and hospitals is going to promote some dimensions of quality and uh, and discourage other dimensions of quality. And there's no payments. So there's no payment, single payment system that will promote all dimensions of quality. So by definition, any single payer system is going to uh, is going to promote some dimensions of quality, but discourage others. And the only way to get around that problem is to have open competition between different ways of financing medical care, paying doctors and hospitals, and organizing doctors and hospitals and, uh, and how they practice different organizational forms. But what Medicare did was Medicare tilted the playing field toward one way of paying for medical care, one way of delivering medical care. We call it fee-for-service uh, or uh, financing and fragmented delivery. All right, what does that mean? What it means is that Medicare would pay doctors and hospitals a fee for each additional service that they provided to patients. This promotes quality in some ways. Uh, it means that the doctor, you get a broad choice of doctors because they all like getting paid that way because the more they do, the more money they make, and they have a lot of discretion about how much they provide the patient. This gives them more autonomy, higher incomes. They like it. Uh, and so you, you have broad choice of doctors uh, that way. It, it also encourages doctors to provide you all necessary medical care. Which is also good, but it discur it, it 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 has a this way of paying doctors has a negative impact on quality in uh, a number of ways. Actually, one is it also encourages them to provide services that are not going to help you, or that have very low value or negative value because they end up harming you. In fact. Uh, and that's probably where a lot of that one third of waste in Medicare comes from. Medicare is just encouraging doctors to do more and more. And so amid all the uncertainty in medicine, they respond to that uncertainty by doing more because they figure that'll probably help the patient. But the research shows that a third of it does not. And a lot of the stuff that, that the extra stuff that this payment system encourages is harmful care, where you get an unnecessary hospital admission. And while you're in there, you get a hospital acquired infection that kills you or a prescription that you didn't really need that you have an adverse reaction to that could even kill you. Medicine is dangerous. And so if you're encouraging doctors to do more and more, you are encouraging them to expose patients to more and more risk. And that's one of the ways that Medicare has reduced quality. It also, I, it reminds me, I talked to uh, Lauren Hall about the medicalization of birth and death. And she was saying that because doctors get paid in this way, which, as you say, is influenced by Medicare, 
you go in more often for checkups when you're pregnant and then you find more problems that aren't actually problems. They're just like little abnormalities that usually are self-correcting. And then you do more procedures. And so it kind of is like this feedback loop. And then about the harm, it's I was reading something about a doctor who would just give a ton of chemotherapy, which is really bad for your body. Obviously, it kills cancer, but it's really destructive it's to the human body. It's not obvious at all that it kills cancer. Really? Oftentimes, chemotherapy, I mean, that's the idea, and often it does kill cancer, but uh, it, it's not obvious, and a lot of times, chemotherapy does not work, but go on. But this this doctor basically got in trouble because he was just giving chemotherapy because it was something to do, as opposed to nothing, which maybe was the the only way to go. So I believe the doctor you're talking about, his name is Fata, and he's a, practiced in Michigan. And I think he's still in prison right now. He was put in prison because he falsely diagnosed people with cancer so that he could bill Medicare for giving them chemotherapy. Medicare pays very handsomely for chemotherapy. And uh, just to make the, and so that is absolutely horrifying. The emotional toll that his actions took on these people who thought they had, when he told them they had a, a deadly illness when they did not, the physical and emotional toll that the treatment took on their bodies, the time uh, it took out of their lives to do all this, um, it's absolutely horrifying. Uh, and to make the situation even more horrifying, have you ever seen those magazines, sometimes in doctor's offices, sometimes elsewhere, that say, you know, Washington, D.C.'s top doctors or Detroit's top yeah. doctors? Well, Dr. Fatah made Detroit's top doctors for almost a decade in a row while he was... easy to cure cancer that doesn't ever exist. While he was poisoning people. And... Uh, I have two colleagues at the Cato Institute, uh, uh, David Hyman and Charles Silver, who wrote a book for us. Uh, uh, the title of the book is Overcharged. They talk about uh, not only Dr. Fata, but all sorts of exam similar examples of horribly wasteful spending, excessive prices, and dangerously low quality care. Uh that result from the fact that the Medicare program and other things the government is doing uh, encourage so much wasteful care uh, and do not apply the sort of scrutiny to medical decisions that patients themselves would be applying if they were spending their own money. And uh, I'm happy to send you a copy of the book. I would love that. I would love that. Um, that's so awful. What other is that the only type of like lying that happens in this system? What what other things does it incentivize that are not good? So one part of that book that I was just looking at right now is um, uh, earlier today was uh, a section of the book where physicians would pay low income patients to undergo unnecessary procedures uh, be, with the money that they would get from Medicare for performing those procedures. Uh, in addition to, and, and then there are the questionable cases about do 
or should hospitals be admitting patients under certain conditions? Their answer is almost always yes, because if they have beds to fill, that's a revenue source and they want to be bringing in revenue. And they're not collecting the sort of data that would tell them, actually, wait, this rule you are using, this heuristic or this rule of thumb you're using about uh, uh, admitting these patients under these circumstances, that's not improving outcomes. And you should stop doing that because it's a waste of resources and potentially exposing them to hospital-acquired infections and other mishaps that happen in hospitals. But the Medicare program discourages hospitals from collecting those sorts of data. I mentioned fee-for-service payment and how uh and what we call fragmented care healthcare delivery this is where uh the doctors practice independently of the hospitals and independently of each other maybe they have small groups or maybe even large groups but they're not all practicing but they're different specialties and uh, have their own groups and they're not practicing as one cohesive whole where all the physician specialties and all hospitals and other facilities are part of the same entity uh when they're not you can lose a, a lot of um, uh, care coordination. Uh, and if you put the patient in the position of trying to remember that the, all the things that all of their specialists said and when to take all of the drugs and, and figure out whether there are interactions between all of these drugs. There are other ways, though, of, of paying for healthcare and organizing its delivery where all of the doctors and uh all nurses and hospitals and other facilities are part of the same entity and they work together and where you the way you pay them does not create incentives for them to provide unnecessary services um, and does not reward medical errors like fee-for-service does uh, under fee-for-service if a patient obtains a, an infection in the hospital the hospital or the physician might get paid for the initial care that the physician provided and then get paid more. Medicare will pay them more for providing the remedial care to help over uh, to help get them over the infection that they got when they were in the hospital. So there's this perverse incentive in place that pays where, where Medicare pays doctors and hospitals more when they provide dangerously low quality care than when they provide high quality care. And there, there are lots of examples of this sort of thing happening. And it happens because fee-for-service externalizes the costs of those errors and forces them on the taxpayer. But there's another way of paying for healthcare where if you give the health system a fixed amount of money per enrollee, and then that money is all the money they have to provide healthcare for all of their enrollees, then that reverses the situation. It places the cost of that additional uh, care after a, a medical error or a hospital-acquired infection on the providers themselves so they have an incentive to invest in the systems that avoid those errors. And uh, Medicare, just like the exclusion for 40 years or now for 100 years, has been discouraging health insurance that lifetime health insurance that covers you between jobs and into retirement, and thereby, uh, thereby uh, contributing, uh, creating or exacerbating the problem of uh, people with uh, uninsurable pre-existing conditions. The Medicare program has been discouraging this way of uh, organizing and delivering health care that. 
reduces medical errors, that encourages investments in research and processes that improve the quality of care, uh, and instead encouraging this way of paying for healthcare that doctors love, but, but really harms patients because it promotes all these uh, dangerous ways of uh, of providing care and rewards lower quality care. Uh, and by tilting the playing field toward fee-for-service, Medicare has prevented the sort of competition between these two types of uh, these two ways of paying for and delivering medicine and all sorts of hybrids in between, the, the sort of competition that would force each of them to improve on the uh, on all dimensions of quality. And and so that's that's really the biggest way that Medicare has had a negative impact on the quality of care is by eliminating innovation and competition in healthcare uh, that would otherwise be enhancing quality. You say doctors love it, but you know who else loves it? Bernie. <laughs> so he famously introduced a bill called Medicare for All. Um, does that does that does that reduce costs? Does it improve quality of care? What it, what does it even mean? What would it imply? So Bernie Sanders falls into that category of people that who Donna Shalala was talking about. Mm-hmm. The when she said she'd never met anyone who supported Medicare for all, who actually understood the Medicare program, Bernie Sanders, for all he talks about the Medicare program, it, it's it's like he doesn't have a clue of what Medicare actually does. In fact, I was I had a phone conversation once with a uh, a left of center health policy professor at a very prestigious university in the United States who studies international health systems. And even though you would think this guy is uh, a perfect candidate for uh, to support Medicare for all, uh, he has studied how health systems operate around the world, including the Medicare program. I was having a conversation with him over the phone once about, uh, about Bernie Sanders and Medicare for all, and I had to pull the phone away from my ear because he shouted so loud, so loudly, Bernie knows absolutely nothing about healthcare. And this was not a libertarian. This was a left of center uh, subject matter expert. So you really have to understand that's the first thing you have to understand about Medicare for all is that the people who support it really don't understand the Medicare program. And again, it's not just the libertarians who are saying this, it's other people on the left who do understand the Medicare program. That's the first thing you have to understand. The second thing you have to understand about Medicare for all is. Uh, how wildly politically implausible it is. So uh, Medicare for all would be taking everyone out of their current health insurance arrangements and putting them into um, not really the Medicare program, but they would have to expand the Medicare program to cover more things and to eliminate the cost sharing that exists in the current Medicare program. So even calling it Medicare for all is a misnomer, but let's just, let's just go with it. Okay. Mm-hmm. There's absolutely no way that you are going to kick 180 million Americans. No, it would be more than 200 million Americans out of their current health insurance and put them in the Medicare program. You're talking about taking private health insurance away from 50 uh, employer sponsored insurance away from 56% of the U.S. population. Uh, uh, 
remember Barack Obama's pledge, if you like your health plan, you can keep it. He didn't actually mean it, but the reason he said it was because he knew that if people thought that he was going to be taking their current health insurance away from him, Obamacare never would have passed. The opposition would have been overwhelming. The opposition to Medicare for all would be even more overwhelming than that because Bernie Sanders is explicitly saying, I want to kick you. I want to kick uh, uh, three quarters of the U.S. population or four fifths of the population out of their current health insurance. Now, he says he's going to give them something better. It wouldn't be better for reasons we've already discussed. It would uh, make the quality of healthcare worse. But uh, that's what he wants to do. And that's how, and that by itself tells you how wildly politically implausible it is. Um, uh, Another reason it would be politically implausible, wildly so, is that uh, conservative estimates, and I don't mean politically conservative, I mean modest, careful, not going crazy estimates. find that in order to finance Medicare for all, everybody's federal taxes would have to double. It's really hard for Congress to pass even small tax increases, let alone doubling of federal taxes. One thing that makes those estimates conservative is they they assume that Bernie Sanders is right about where Medicare would set the prices, that Medicare would set prices for healthcare services low. Uh, that's actually, for many reasons, a, a wildly implausible assumption. Medicare would have to set the prices much higher than where Bernie estimates. And then uh, in that case, federal taxes would have to more than double. Yeah. Good luck getting Americans to agree to that one. <laughs> Jeez, that's such a crazy number. Oh, my. So, okay. And, and Bernie will say, Bernie will say, but we'll, we'll just do what every other country in the world does. There is no other country in the world that does what Bernie Sanders wants to do. Oh, uh, in part because Bernie Sanders would also prohibit private health insurance. There is a provision in his bill that says private health insurance would be illegal, can't sell it, can't buy it. If a right to health care means anything, and it, it means you have a right to pool your resources with whomever you choose in order to uh, pull whatever medical expenses you choose, Bernie Sanders would totally take away that right. Uh, Not even the British National Health Service, which really is a single payer system for the people who enroll. It doesn't take away that right. You can still buy private insurance in Britain or in Scandinavian countries where they have universal health insurance uh, or in any other country except for Canada, Cuba and North Korea. And even in parts of Canada, you can buy uh, supplemental um, or, or you can you can buy substitute coverage uh, or coverage for things that the uh, Canadian system doesn't cover. Uh, so so that's another way that no other country does Medicare for all, but no other country centralizes decision making over healthcare the way Medicare for all would for a, a population of three hundred and thirty million uh, million people, all the decisions are going to be made in Washington, D.C. You know, the British National Health Service, uh, Britain has, what, 60 million people or so? Uh, They push a lot of that decision-making out to the local level. So does Canada's Medicare system. No nation centralizes uh, uh, decision-making over health care the way Medicare for all would. People look at uh, single-payer systems like they have in Iceland. And say, well, that's very successful. Well, you know what? 
Iceland is approximately the size of Honolulu. <laughs> if Iceland were a city in the United States, it wouldn't even be in the top 50. And when you Oof. have a small city like Honolulu, yeah, maybe you can create a single payer program that won't be uh, too dysfunctional. Um, uh, but uh, when you scale that up to 330 million people, you're going to get a lot of dysfunction. So uh, uh, that's what Bernie Sanders has in mind with Medicare for all. Uh, a wildly implausible, incredibly costly uh, expansion of government's role in healthcare that no other country has ever attempted before. Um, and for, for some reasons I mentioned and others uh, uh, we could still discuss, would make the quality of healthcare in this country even worse. So I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this. Can you give us, I know there are like a lot of things that can be done, need to be done, should be done to reform healthcare or Medicare or all of it. Can you give us like one or two? The two most important things that government needs to do in order to improve uh Healthcare make healthcare of ever increasing quality available to an ever increasing number of people uh, is number one. It needs to change who controls the money. Right now, in the U.S. health sector, government controls about eighty-three percent of the spending. Eighty-three percent of U.S. health spending is compulsory government compulsory spending. Some of it is through the private sector, but as we mentioned. The government is penalizing you unless you spend your money the way the government wants. That's a larger share than in uh, Canada or Britain, where it's like, uh, I think, 74 and 79 percent is the ninth highest share among OECD nations. And it's within three percentage points of number one. Number one is Norway at 86 percent. And the United States only three percentage points behind government, not individual consumers is the entity that is controlling uh, most health spending. And so the first thing that we would need to do to improve the performance of the health sector is to take the $4 trillion uh, that, uh, that that government employers and consumers spend on healthcare in this country, give it all to consumers so that they can choose the health plan of their uh, choice. Uh, it could be uh, health insurance that stays with them uh, through jobs, through retirement for the rest of their lives. Uh, and they will spend that money much more carefully than the government does or than employers do. We will see prices fall. Uh, and there are experiments that have shown that when consumers are price conscious, uh, they demand price reductions and they get them and prices fall. And falling prices is the most important thing we can do to bring healthcare to an ever-increasing number of people. Because more people can afford it and it's easier for the rest of us to uh, afford to provide it for people who can't, who still can't, because even though the prices are lower, the, it's more affordable for us to do. And the second thing that you need to do to, uh, oh, and uh, with regard to the first thing, there, there are different pots of money and you need different reforms to return those different pots of money to the consumer with, with people, for people in employer, uh, for people under age 65, you need to change the tax code to eliminate this penalty on consumers controlling their own healthcare dollars. Uh, 
that would return $1 trillion. If you do it the right way, that would return $1 trillion every year to the workers who earned it, $1 trillion of their health insurance spending to the workers who earned it, and they would make much better, more careful decisions than employers make spending that money. With regard to Medicare, what you would want to do is basically just turn it into a social security-like program where the government gives enrollees cash and trusts them to spend it. You'd want to give sicker enrollees a bigger Medicare check. You'd want to give poor enrollees a bigger Medicare check so they can afford a a basic standard package of health insurance coverage, uh, but, but then leave them alone to make those decisions themselves. And again, they'll make much smarter decisions than uh, the, the government makes with that money. That's another trillion dollars a year, just about. And they will also help bring down prices. The next thing you want to do is, the second thing you want to do is uh, eliminate barriers to cost-reducing and quality-improving innovations. Just by giving all that, that trillion dollars of Medicare spending to enrollees as cash, you'll get rid of a lot of the rules that Medicare puts in place about fee-for-service and other things that tilt the playing field away from cost-saving innovations, uh, like the sort of integrated health, health plans that I talked about that uh, that you, you use different final, financial incentives to encourage different dimensions of quality. And you'll get then open competition between all these ways of paying for healthcare and all these ways of delivering healthcare. And uh, that competition will force them to improve on all dimensions of quality. So you'll get a lot more quality innovation there and, and quality will improve just by changing who controls the money. But you also have to get rid of regulations that that physicians put in place to block some of those innovations, that hospitals put in place to block those innovations, that uh, even drug companies uh, put in place to block innovative, lower cost, uh, higher quality and lower cost pharmaceuticals. And uh, implementing this, this, this second prong of the strategy, getting rid of these uh, barriers to innovation. That also re- requires a lot of different uh, actions at the at the federal level and at the state level. Uh, I recommend getting rid of licensing of clinicians because everyone acknowledges that uh, licensing of clinicians, though it's supposed to improve the quality of care, uh, that's the stated purpose. Uh, everyone acknowledges that it increases prices and makes it harder for poor people to afford care, but it also reduces the quality of care by re- by blocking some of these co- these quality improving innovations that I've been talking about. Uh, uh, you'll also want to get rid of the laws that require new entrance into a market to get permission from the government, like new to open new hospitals or ambulatory surgical centers, or even just to invest in new qu- equipment like magnetic resonance imagers, MRIs. In many states, about 36 states, you have laws where you they have to go get permission from the government to enter a market and they have to prove to the government that the market needs their services, which is a requirement that gives their competitors an opportunity to go to the government and say, no, the community does not need their services. Uh, please deny this request. And they, that's usually what happens. And and so we got to get rid of those regulations. We need to get rid of uh, health insurance regulations at both the state and federal level that block innovative health insurance products, that uh, that 
uh, would be covering you, as I mentioned, throughout the course of your life, innovative products that can reduce the cost of care, innovative products that could uh, offer enrollees a total satisfaction guarantee on their health insurance. So that if your insurance company is shortchanging you, uh, you would have the right to a cash payout that will enable you to purchase insurance uh, at uh, from other insurance companies. And you wouldn't have to fear the higher prices that they might charge you if you would if you were sick, because that cash payout would cover those higher premiums. All of these innovations uh, are already available. People have already developed them, but regulation is blocking them. And the way the government controls health spending is blocking those regulations. So you, uh, is blocking those innovations. So you change who controls the money and you remove those barriers and we will see better, more affordable and more secure health insurance and medical care. Uh, and and innovation that fills in the because innovation will be filling in the cracks of our health sector so that fewer and fewer people fall through every day. I wish we had more time, but I have one more question for you. What is one thing that you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? So I don't know if I mentioned this one last time, but uh I used to believe what doctors say about the medical malpractice system. The medical malpractice system is the is what libertarians think government should be doing to discipline doctors. If a doctor harms you through through negligence, then you can take them to court and the court will force the doctor to make you whole by paying you some cash uh, award. And it doesn't really make you whole. But the purpose of the MedMal system is just to keep you from uh, uh, taking the law and justice into your own hands and um, exacting revenge on that doctor through violence, which is something that happens in parts of the world still where they don't have a functioning medical malpractice system, places like China and elsewhere. What doctors say about the medical malpractice system is that it's mean to doctors, that it uh, it, it too often rewards uh, it encourages people to file frivolous lawsuits and awards uh, cash judgments when there was no negligence or no injury. And that happens sometimes. Doctors uh, and their, their their lobbying organizations make it sound like that's all the medical malpractice system does. But in fact, the, the medical malpractice system does do a, a – it does discipline doctors. It does put the fear of God in them, if you will, which is why they – uh, they, they fear and want to reform this system so much. Uh, and, in, and in fact, it's the only thing that does. And most of the, uh, the because government licensing of clinicians, the licensing boards don't discipline doctors. And there's almost no other quality, um, nothing else that the government does that, that, that promotes quality care. Uh, but medical malpractice liability does. And so when doctors propose reforms to that system, it's just, it's not to protect patients by making healthcare more affordable. It's just to protect doctors from higher medical malpractice liability insurance premiums or higher awards. And we published a bo- another book at the Cato Institute, also by David Hyman, Charlie Silver, and a couple of other scholars uh, that uh, that looks at the effect of the reforms that doctors have been begging for for all these years, and. Uh, 
whether they have, it looks at whether they have uh, made healthcare more affordable. And what they conclude is it has made healthcare better for patients. Uh, the main beneficiary of the beneficiaries of the med mal reforms that doctors want are doctors because it reduces the number of awards. It reduces medical malpractice, liability insurance premiums and results in higher incomes for doctors while at the same time reducing the ability of patients who whom those doctors have injured uh, from collecting from those doctors. Once again, I'd like to thank my guest for their time and insight. And I'd like to thank you for listening to The Great Antidote podcast. The Great Antidote is sound engineered by Rich Goyette. If you have any questions, any guests or topic recommendations, please feel free to reach out to me at thegreatantidote at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you.